3: Good morning. It's 830 on Tuesday, March 28th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, as the legislative session enters its final week, some lawmakers hope to secure financial relief for communities devastated by last week's tornadoes. And one conference report passed by both chambers could open the door for armed teachers in Mississippi classrooms. Then an exhibit in Jackson tells the stories of African-American midwives in the South. Plus, how a recent heart freeze could be giving some commercial fruit farmers the blues. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio lawmakers are hoping to move quickly to get some funding to the counties ravaged by storms before the legislative session ends. Destructive storms and at least one tornado ripped a path 100 miles long across Mississippi late Friday night. At least 25 people are dead and a number of communities are devastated. Federal dollars have already been promised by the Biden administration through a major disaster declaration. But House Democrat John Hines, Hines rather, of Greenville, tells our Lacey Alexander he hopes something can be done on the state level by the end of the session.
4: I have a part of uh, the uh, South Delta School District as part of the district in which I represent. And I had a couple of friends who lost their lives um, in this storm. And I'm, I'm torn. You know, um, the the Lord uh, works in mysterious ways, and uh, sometimes tragedy like this pulls communities together. But uh, what I've saw is a level of love and resiliency uh, in in the two communities. Uh, I know people in Silver City as well as Rolling Fork, uh, and so I'm uh, I'm just kind of you know roller coaster ride emotion. It's just amazing. We have people who have been calling from, you know, central Mississippi, the other side of Mississippi, who wants to do uh, stuff. Classmates of mine who have uh, lived in uh, Texas and Florida, are sending money and stuff. So um, it's it's just a, you know, it's roller coaster. You, know, you you spend one minute crying, and the next minute you rejoice because, you know, you just don't even think about how people uh, come together in, in, in tragic tragedy like this. I hope we can learn that uh, regardless of where we are from, uh, how we uh, live our lives or earn our money, that we can come together and work and make Mississippi better. Uh, I think God allows this situations like this to happen to remind people that we're all human and we have a better purpose than what we've been serving uh, while we're in uh, elected positions and leadership roles. I think we have to be mindful of those kind of things. What is legislation at the state level doing to help your community right now? Well, actually, uh, they're supposed to be uh, bringing some, before we leave, we're supposed to be voting on some funding, uh, emergency management funding. We don't actually know what the numbers is. Uh, It first started out at 5, then went up to 8. Some people think it's going to be 15 to 20. Uh, I'm more in the range of maybe $80 to $100 million worth of damage uh, overall in that community because... uh, Rolling Fork completely wiped out, Silver City. But when you look from end to end, it's the, the ticket possibly should at least be $80 to $100 million. But, you know, we just don't know how much the federal government is going to bring and how much the state will be responsible for. But uh, the conversations I had with the, with the speaker had been very, very refreshing. Um, and uh, when he first got elected, he had part of that area in his district. So uh, it's, you know, I, I think we're just in a good place uh, for finding some uh, resolve in this situation. We were in Rolling Fork yesterday, mm-hmm. and a lot of these people. I was, too. I was, I was there all morning. A yeah. lot of people said, talking about housing, I don't wanna leave my community. This is my home. I don't wanna be placed somewhere far away. What about that area is so important to those residents? It's home. Home is where your heart is. Um, I've, I've been fortunate enough to live in Greenville all my life, with the exception of going off to college in the military. Um, that's where the root your roots are, and people uh, in Mississippi we, it can't, we are we're cornbread and greens and beans. You know, we basically uh, want to be around our family, our friends. Um, when your parents kind of age out, you want to be close to them, so nothing happens to them. And then, as they age out, you become the aged, and so you know it, it, it's it's a cycle of legacy and history that uh, a small community like that, for lack of better words, Mayberry. You know. Everybody wants in Mississippi. Tries to give everyone that Mayberry feeling, and so uh, we're grateful that uh, people want to stay. They don't want to run away, and because uh, that's a that's a uh, area that's rich with legacy and history, and so we want to restore it and make it you know make it the the uh, pulse of the Delta that it once was. Representative, thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me.
3: That's Representative John Hines of Greenville with our Lacey Alexander. After a weekend of deliberations, lawmakers are approving final conference reports this week. Yesterday, both chambers passed the Mississippi School Protection Act. It would allow school districts to opt into a program that will train and permit school personnel to conceal carry guns on campus. Known as the Guardian's program, the measure also provides immunity to participants under certain circumstances. Republican Nick Bain of Corinth presented the bill on the House floor yesterday. He was questioned about those immunity provisions by Democrat Bryant Clark of Pickens.
5: The scope and purpose of each program shall include responding to an active shooter situation or other situation that would cause death or serious bodily harm. That's another change that we made in conference. We added the word serious before it just said bodily harm. I had some issue with that because that was kind of mean you could potentially say somebody breaking up a fight could cause bodily harm. But serious bodily harm on the school campus or in uh, the immediate vicinity of the school.
4: And then also I noticed that it just simply say immunity. You got two types of immunity. You have criminal immunity as well as civil immunity.
5: The, the, the criminal is is in the bill as well. It, it, they can be justified and have an affirmative defense. Uh, action, section three brings that in there, uh, line two ninety one. When necessarily committed in performance of duty as a member of a school safety guardian program, so you, your criminal liability uh, when it comes to a school guardian is, is, should be covered.
4: So they will have criminal liability as well?
5: They can have immunity, yes.
4: Yeah, criminal immunity. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, and, and an affirmative defense.
3: Opponents of the bill, like Democrat Jeffrey Hullum of Gulfport, wondered why the measure didn't specify which types of firearms would be permissible for those enrolled in the program.
4: I read this bill two times, so I'm trying to figure out what is the type of firearms that would be allowed for these guardians to carry?
3: It doesn't
5: it doesn't limit that. It, it doesn't uh it doesn't say any type of firearm I I don't believe uh unless these statutes which I, I did not make any type of note as to that and these statutes would talk about uh like section 45901 with an endorsement type, unless those limit what type of gun can be carried. There's no spe- no specificity in the bill that does so.
4: Because I, I truly think we are going down a slippery slope. If you, if we do not put the type of firearm in there that must be carried because you can take a assault rifle that with a short short barrel, is considered a pistol, not a long gun. So you may have a teacher or administrator in this guardian program saying that they want to take that or they want a 357 Magnum. You know, you're only supposed to use the necessary equipment to neutralize or detain a situation. So have we thought about that? The
3: measure ultimately passed the House 79 to 32, with 10 either not voting or voting present. During debate, Democrat Chef Taylor of Starkville questioned the possible unintended consequences of the legislation.
4: I will submit to you that this bill may be well-intentioned, but the ramifications of a person with very little training walking to a school setting with a classroom that's probably overcrowded, with the, with maybe a behavioral problem here and there, that the conversation may end up in a lethal situation without an active shooter being involved.
3: The Senate voted 38 to 14 in favor of the conference report. Representative Nick Bain says no school is compelled to participate and that districts may decide if, who, and how many guardians it would enlist. Coming up, an exhibit in Jackson tells the stories of African-American midwives in the South. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
0: Classical, jazz, indie, blues, folk, bluegrass, whatever you call your music. Find it on MPB Music Radio on mpbonline.org or the MPB Public Media app or on an HD radio.
3: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. African-American midwives, also known as granny midwives, were some of the first to make the practice of midwifery prominent in the South. From the Gulf States newsroom, Maya Miller heads to a new permanent installation in Jackson that shares their story.
0: From Florida, Aurelia Hardin has arrived at a museum in Jackson, Mississippi. She's not alone. She's with her mother and teenage daughter. They're in town for a show choir competition, but on a slow Saturday in February, they're here to learn about midwives. It was, like, remember when Grandma was working at the hospital? That kind of looks like how it was then. The three women are standing in a room with an iron double bed made with starch white linens. At the foot of the bed is a worn leather bag, and nearby, on a stool, rests a kettle large enough to bathe a newborn baby.
1: This probably was the hot water. Yeah.
0: This is a permanent exhibit on Mississippi's Granny Midwives at the Smith Robertson Museum and Cultural Center in downtown Jackson. The Hardens, who are black, pause at every section of the exhibit, including one that tells the story of how the first midwives, who were enslaved women, were brought to America from West Africa. On a small table, there are cotton bundles along with miniature versions of farming equipment reinforcing how, even through backbreaking manual labor, someone still needed to deliver babies. Aurelia's mother, Marilyn, who is
1: 65, tells my family stories. My, my grandfather, he was a sharecropper and, um and they had cotton, and they also had tobacco, but this is what cotton looked like. And
0: then, the family gathers closer to the glass that protects midwifery manuals and birth certificates from the 1930s.
1: You know, either mine or my parents, they have the word color.
0: Marilyn remembers what it was like to work in the fields during the summer. She also remembers stories of women delivering babies in those same fields.
1: You wouldn't expect the farmer to come out, but a lot of times we did, you know. You know, had to deliver a baby if the midwife didn't show up. You know, the grandparents or somebody had to deliver them in the field.
0: Both Marilyn and Aurelia are educators in Florida, and the state has come down hard against teaching race or African-American history, especially in the past year. As she looked over the midwifery exhibit, Marilyn said it is vital to seek out black history.
1: Because a black history, they don't want you to, you know, don't even teach black history. You know, they want to infuse it. They want to teach that other history somebody else's history <laughs> but uh, they don't want you to know your history or take a class in it you know this museum
0: is a small part of the deeper history of this area of Jackson It's just a few blocks over from Ferris Street which was once the black
1: epicenter of the city you know you know the history of Ferris Street If you say Ferris Street it's like saying uh, Bill Street or Bourbon Street. That's Gwen Harmon. She's the manager and curator for educational exhibits at the museum. It's all black. It's black cultural. It's black historical. Farris Street used to be the hub of uh, African-American physicians, pharmacies, retailers, restaurants. Mm -hmm. In the the Jim Crow Crow South,
0: most hospitals would not accept black patients. Black women, and sometimes poor white women, would call on the midwives to deliver their babies at home. But by the mid-20th century, granny midwives were being edged out of the practice.
1: There are other um, entities that come before who find that maybe that's an encroachment on what they have been doing. Pretty much the majority white medical profession. Because they started putting a lot of limitations on the midwives. You
0: Those limitations included the ability to prescribe medicines, courses they took, how to keep patient records, and even what the midwives wore.
1: What they were hoping for was that it would reduce Black women becoming midwives. And it did have an impact on that number. The numbers did start to drop, as you can imagine.
0: And so did the communities around Fair Street. But now there are efforts to preserve the area. And she encourages others to search their family archives and attics for artifacts of what their ancestors accomplished to share those stories with future generations.
1: It's a wealth of knowledge. Um, Look at at your museums and, and go and see about donating those items and creating an exhibit of some sort so that the world can understand how important it was. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Maya Miller.
3: The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public media stations in Louisiana and Alabama. Coming up, how a recent hard freeze could be giving some commercial fruit farmers the blues. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
2: Hi, I'm Richard Gerson, the host of In Legal Terms and a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. If you miss a live In Legal Terms episode, find our podcast, terms.mpbonline.org.
3: This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at MPBonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Blueberries, they're the state's largest commercial fruit crop with up to 2,000 acres of production each year. But Mississippi blueberry producers can expect to see substantial yield losses following a recent hard freeze. Eric Stephanie is a fruit and nut specialist with the Mississippi State University Extension Service. He explains more with our Michael Guidry.
2: The most of the production is about in the southern part of state, maybe south of I twenty, um, but there's you know roughly one thousand to two thousand acres uh, at any time uh, that's uh, harvested for commercial type production. But there's also other varying levels of production. Um, people use it for local markets, you know, home use, uh, pick your own, all those sort of things. So. Um, you know, those those are also agritourism type activities that people are uh, used to uh, participating in. And so um, it, it's very popular. And uh, Mississippi is a pretty good place to grow blueberries because uh, of the soils that we have here, especially in the Pine Belt area, South Mississippi, they, the soils are acidic. Um, so it's. Uh, very good for blueberries, and we have lots of uh, native blueberry bushes that grow wild here. Um, And and so a lot of the varieties that we grow are are just, you know, uh, bred from wild bushes at one period in time. And so they're not that far removed from that genetic base. So, um, you know, they're they're well adapted here.
6: We had an uncharacteristic, you know, mid- to late March freeze, um, and that has potentially caused a, a kind of a disruption in, in blueberry harvest, blueberry production. Uh, how uncharacteristic is a freeze like that, and how does it interrupt, you know, the the plant's life cycle uh, when it comes to producing you know, lots of fruit during those uh, early summer harvest months?
2: Right. So the freeze event that we had around March 20th uh, was really devastating for a number of reasons. One, because it got very cold. It got colder than usual this late in, in the season. And um, the other contributing factor was February was so warm that the, uh, the bloom and the fruit development was ahead of schedule. So in a year where we You know, it might be normal to get potentially a frost event at that time of the year. Uh, The plants usually aren't that far along. It doesn't get quite as cold as it did, and we don't we see maybe some effect, but not as devastating effect as we had this time. So, when you get down to 24, 25 degrees, um, and the fruit is already set on on the bush, uh, that destroys the fruit. It also kills any flowers that are open at that time. And there's not a lot you can do uh, to protect it, unfortunately. Um, And, and, uh, you know, our industry, even though we have uh, a thousand acres or more, um, it's still pretty small. Most of our farms are very small, and they don't have the infrastructure to protect against a, a freeze event like that.
6: So that's a great explanation of of how that freeze kind of interrupted the life cycle and what it does to the plant. Now on the on on the other side of it, the the farmers, um, whether they be commercial farmers, uh, small you know farmers market farmers, or some of the agritourism like you mentioned the the you know come pick your own that that attracts people. Uh, what is this going to do to their bottom line?
2: Yeah, I think for commercial uh, growers who. Uh, sell to wholesalers and th- that sort of thing, is it's really devastating um, because you're wiping out maybe 50 percent, maybe 75 percent, 80 percent. It's still a little early to know the exact amount, but uh, for some, it's almost a complete loss. So um, they have nothing to sell or if there is anything still out there in the field, it may not be um, – you know, economically viable to go and harvest it. You know, and and another uh, factor into this is the availability of labor. So, um, you know, if you have a large farm and you're bringing in worker harvest uh, fruit and there's not much fruit, then you're not going to need all those workers uh, to come in. And so um, it, it's really devastating for them. Now, for something like a pick-your-own or, uh, you know, some maybe local market, there probably will still be some fruit, um, though it's going to be not as much fruit. So, uh, you, you know, that the, the, just the volumes won't be there uh,
6: this year. And So what could that do for the market price of blueberries this season? Are you coming— I mean, should people who frequent farmers' markets because of what you just said uh, expect a little bit of a higher price uh, and is Mississippi enough of a uh, a commodity producer uh, or, or a blueberry producer nationally that it'll affect you, you know sales or, or some market prices um, on a larger scale
2: yeah it's it's probably not very much going to change the prices uh, a lot. Uh, there might be some change in local markets um, where there's a, a you know not very much fruit, so the price might be a little bit higher on a national scale, um, Mississippi's uh, uh, not a huge player, so that's not going to really affect things very much. Um, maybe uh, a little bit on certain markets that might get some Mississippi fruit, but um, globally and nationally, there's a lot of blueberries out there and and so it's probably not going to affect things that way very much.
6: Eric Staffney is a professor of fruit crops at the Mississippi State University Extension Service. Eric, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us about blueberry production and and the effect this recent freeze has had on our blueberry farmers. You are very welcome.
3: This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.